Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The moment he was arrested, I was told categorically from a police officer that he had parental rights. My concern was he would return her and have no hesitation of slitting her throat in front of me. The following episode contains discussion around suicide, stalking and violence against women. Please listen with caution. So there's a couple ways we could go about this. As part of this investigation, I'm having weekly chats with my producer, Kim. The topic of today's discussion, how can we find a reformed stalker? Yeah, I mean, we could always do social media, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I guess we won't have any control over who replies or if anyone replies. Yeah, maybe there's organisations that work with stalkers. Yeah, Okay. maybe I'll just try that. Yeah. I have no idea if we'll be successful in this search or not. But before we go further, I want to make it clear. This podcast is not just about stalkers. In every case, there is a perpetrator. And then there is their target. As we learned last time from Dr. Rachel Wheatley, many people know their stalker. In fact, Around 45% of victims are stalked by an ex-partner, according to Safer Futures. One organisation working to support victims of stalking is Black Country Women's Aid. The charity established a specific unit for stalking victims in 2018. Lorraine Garrettley manages the stalking service. We've always supported stalking victims as part of our domestic abuse service. But we also realised that there was no service for victims who were not intimately linked to the persons that were now stalking them. So we wanted to provide a service for all stalking victims as opposed to those only who were in intimate relationships. Uh, Either attempting to reconcile the relationship or to exact some kind of revenge for that perceived or actual rejection. The rejected stalker typology often arises in the context of a relationship ending. This relationship has often been abusive. In your experience, is stalking a form of coercive control or would you categorise it as something different? I think it's a continuation A lot of the clients that we speak to and we support will identify methods of coercive control in relationships whilst they were in their relationship. Stalking is a a continuation of that attempt, that behaviour. But I think what changes is the motivation of, of why that person is seeking the victim out. So if you can imagine, there is a high level of monitoring, surveillance, Where have you been? What have you been doing? That might be something that we capture as part of that stalking pattern. And it's very much mirrors the behaviours that clients have experienced when that relationship was intact. Yeah, completely agree. This is Em, an independent stalking advocacy caseworker. 
M has asked us to mask her voice due to the high-risk nature of her work. If there's been a level of control in that relationship, the kind of everyday norms of possibly having your partner checking your phone on a regular basis then kind of plants the seeds of future stalking because potential recording or listening devices may have already been planted on that phone during the relationship and it's kind kind of set up ready for stalking to take place post-relationship as well. Here is Labour MP Sarah Champion talking to Sky News on the importance of stalking advocates in July 2023. What I really want to see is the overhaul of our justice system so that everybody that is a victim of a crime gets the justice they need. And a stalking advocate is a very crucial first step in that. There's been a lot of talk about independent stalking advocates lately. Can you tell me what are they and how would they benefit victims of stalking? So we primarily advocate for our clients and they provide that advocacy purpose. So when clients don't feel like they've been listened to, um, aren't being represented in their views correctly, that's our role. We give them the voice that they are struggling to have at this moment in time. On average, only one in a thousand stalkers are convicted. Compare that to cases where a victim has an advocate Then, one in four stalkers are convicted. According to the Susie Lamplew Trust, less than 1% of stalking victims last year had access to a stalking advocate. We completely listen to what our clients are saying to us. They are our best risk assessors of the risk that that perpetrator poses. If they say, I really believe that that person may kill me, I believe that as well. They know that person best. They know their triggers and that's what our role is to convey that message to other professionals where they may be struggling to have that voice. We also provide a level of emotional support for our clients whilst they're in service with us and also providing that practical support for them as well, such as um, kind of giving them the advice and guidance with regarding safety for stalking behaviours um, and also kind of helping them with communications with the police, um, any other agencies such as housing, if that's kind of something that's now been impacted due to stalking behaviour. Mental health a lot of the time can be impacted as well. So kind of signposting them to the relevant agencies and making sure that their needs are met. In your experience, when a victim first makes contact with the police, has the response been adequate? Do you feel like victims have been supported and believed by the police? It's tricky because I think there has been an improvement more recently in policing regarding stalking and the officers that we work with are particularly brilliant and it's more about getting that wider understanding amongst the entirety of the police force which is probably kind of more of the core issue. It's the crimes that stalking kind of take place in such as the individual acts are more likely to be crimed just as that individual act rather than piecing it all together as a continuous pattern of stalking so it might be one break in one breach of non-molestation order and one set of flowers have been left on a doorstep but they see that's individual incidences so they're not putting it together and seeing that that's a pattern and that's then becoming difficult for us as a supporting organisation to try and get charges pushed through for stalking offences because the crimes and how they've been actually recorded are possibly incorrect in the first place. A bouquet of flowers for somebody on their doorstep or something like that, that in itself, if you looked at that on its own, is is not an offence. So that's really challenging for them people who are victims of stalking to say, but I didn't want that bouquet of flowers to be left. 
Um, and I think there is kind of that stigma still of, oh, you must be really lucky because somebody really love, loves you that much to be doing that. But they're ignoring the fact of it doesn't matter if it appears nice, that contact is still unwanted um, and in effect then stalking. So it, it is difficult to get the police's reaction probably to victims in the correct way. I'm hoping it's getting there and it is going to be improving slowly. Yeah, I think I would add to that that it is quite difficult because often victims are reporting single incidents or stalking is often made up of individual acts that on their own are not criminal offences. Messaging somebody is not a criminal offence. Walking past their home is not a criminal offence on its own. But we have to put it all together and look at the conduct as a whole as opposed to looking at all of those incidents in isolation. And often when victims are reporting, they're reporting because they're feeling concerned or scared, but they may not use the terminology stalking. They're just letting somebody know this behaviour is happening and it's making me feel concerned. And it's really sort of on the part of the police when they're reporting that to sort of recognise the behaviour for what it is, because the victim may not use that specific word. Research by Dr Lorraine Sheridan showed that 70% of victims do not report to the police until the 100th incident. Recognising these events as patterns is incredibly important. So can you both just tell me what you've had for breakfast this morning? <laughs> Pepsi Max, that's the breakfast of champions today. <laughs> this is Emma. She and her ex-partner were together for about three years before his behaviour started to change. And soon it became physically abusive. They shared an infant child at the time. We were together essentially for seven years, um, give or take. Very much treated me like a princess, almost idolised um, is probably the right word to use. And I had a very successful job and he was in a very similar field, but not as qualified. He, he was very aware of that and very felt like he was less of a person because he wasn't as qualified. But to externally, it was very much, you know, showing you off and treating like a princess and Outwardly, you know, we had the perfect life sort of things, you know, holidays, you know, pubs, that sort of thing. And then obviously the the doubts and the insecurities crept in and that, that's when I'd say it would change. He didn't move in. He moved himself in incredibly, incredibly quickly to the point where, you know, you feel uncomfortable sort of saying like, can you go home now? Um, but he wasn't aware. With hindsight, you can see obviously the, the flags, but at the time it was very much, you know, externally, quickly, you know, very superficially, I love yous, I need this, and that princess persona, really. This is Emma's experience of stalking, and her views are her own. So the stalking began um, after the relationship ended. So he was arrested for domestic violence, um, and then he was released with bail conditions. Those bail conditions are pretty standard, you know, not to contact um, directly or indirectly for any third parties. Pretty much within a couple of days, I'd had calls from friends, and then obviously that that would be him at the end of the phone. Um, I didn't know the extent of it, um, obviously, and it progressed quite quickly. And then the consequences of, of all of that pretty much started straight away. At the time, did you ever consider that behaviour stalking? 
No, from from the moment he was arrested, um, you obviously go through various due processes. There's you know social services. There are what they call the Marac team. So Marac stands for Multi Agency Risk Assessment Conference, a meeting between various representatives of local police, health, child protection and others on the highest risk domestic abuse cases. So the moment he was arrested, I was told categorically from a police officer that he had parental rights and he would at some point get, you know, shared custody of my child. Knowing the capability of who and what he was, my my concern wasn't that he could take my daughter for a visit uh, and look after her for an hour. My concern was, and I'd repeat it over and over, was he would return her and have no hesitation of slitting her throat in front of me. And during the course of the relationship, when you, you become indifferent is the only way to describe it. So you, you rally against the abuse, you fight the abuse, you become submissive to the abuse. But then you become completely indifferent, which then takes away that element of control. So the only control that he had was third parties, so friends, family, and ultimately my daughter. So I knew that was he a danger to her as a person? No. But could he do that to get back at me? A hundred percent. And there was multi-agencies telling me categorically that this would happen. So at the time I didn't consider it stalking. I knew he wasn't concerned for her welfare. I knew it was an element of control over me. But putting the words together as in what you perceive stalking to be and what I was experiencing, they felt different. I understand now that they a hundred percent were. But at that time, no. But equally, at that time, you you not you're not living a life. You're existing, if that makes sense. So you are a shell of the person that you are. So you're very reactive. So your brain didn't go into fight or flight. Your brain went into freeze and be complacent. Do whatever you can to to stop the next act from coming. And you're always thinking of three acts ahead of what that person is capable of. I remember distinctly saying to him that, you know, I can't continue like this anymore. I've got a daughter to look after. And that night he held a crowbar over her head for eight hours um, while I sat and watched and I couldn't comfort her. And it was because he couldn't attack me because he knew I couldn't care in that sense. The priority was my child. And could he have done it? Then yes, it was that element of control. So you're always thinking of that after, so to speak. Gosh, I can't, I can't even imagine the impact it's had on you during that time. That sounds, that sounds excruciating. If you're okay to, can you share some of those acts of stalking and what they look like? I, I always recorded everything because obviously from, like I said, the, the agencies are telling you no contact, no contact. And because you have had contact, then you're seeing to be the danger to the child, if that makes sense. So I was told by social services, as an example, that I was psychologically damaging my eight-month-old child because I would answer a phone call to know if he was drunk or not and if I had to run that night or not. If he sent a text back saying, I'm coming to your house, by me responding to that text, I was putting the child in danger. By refusing to go no contact, and it wasn't because I didn't want to go no contact, it was because, one, it gave me a heads up of what I'd potentially be facing that day, but two, going no contact didn't wouldn't necessarily stop the abuse, it would come in a different format or put other people at risk. So he would send messages um, saying your curtains are open or closed. 
He would send messages saying, why are you driving in this particular direction? He would call repeatedly and to the point where you didn't have time to dial 999 in between calls, threatening abuse. He would ring and if I didn't answer the phone, leave messages to the extent of saying, I'll do a 20-year stretch for you. It'll be too late by the time police get there. If I didn't answer that call, he'd then ring the house phone and it would be obviously on speaker because the answer phone would answer. And he'd just repeat threats over and over again. So there was no escape. It was just constant from one way or another. And I knew, like, if I didn't answer those calls or respond to those calls, then it would just play out in a different way. So at the far end, the extreme end of it, it was jumping in front of a car. So I'd be driving along the street and jump in front of the car. He would accost me at my child's nursery. He would follow me in the car. Uh, he'd be waiting for me at various places. He'd ring me in the middle of the night saying that he'd been stabbed. Um, could I get the police there or he needed help? And then the lies in between as well. So, And that was the danger. During this time when the stalking happened, you're, you're in a stage where you... It sounds awful, but you have to call their bluff, so to speak. So, you know, he's threatening 100 times to drive a car through your house. So you get to a point where you're like, fine, drive a car through the house. It took four attempts for Emma to secure a non-molestation order against her ex-partner. A non-molestation order is a type of injunction that is granted in order to prevent a partner or former partner causing harm to someone or their children. Despite having one in place, Emma's stalker continued to harass her. I'd gone away on a, on a work night and he'd rang on that work night repeatedly and obviously I hadn't answered the phone and ignored it and he'd rang the police to say that they need to do a welfare check, that I was a danger to my child and myself. This is despite obviously being he shouldn't have had contact and he was an arrestable offence and he was told that categorically by the police officer and he just put, so what? And I'd called that bluff and he'd done it anyway. Um, so he didn't have regard to consequences. So, he, you know, if he could speak to a police officer and say, I'm actively breaching this, then yes, he could drive a car through my house or he could turn up at my mum's house. Or like you would say, make my nieces or nephews do a, quote, Madeleine McCann and disappear. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely horrifying. How supported did you feel by the police? Uh, at the, honestly, at the time, so during, obviously, the first, I'd say, probably nine months, maybe, of it, I wasn't, if I'm honest. I would have his parole officer, when he was released on bail, ring me up and say, are you likely to get into a relationship with him? And I was like, no. And then he would send a load of abuse saying, "This they've told me this. I'd have other police officers ring me, like I say, saying that, you know, come on, play fair. You know, it's a dad after all. He hugely kicked off one of the days, which was coming up for Father's Day. So the police had to come out and they, I think they did, if I can remember rightly, had to do two separate statements that same day for different offences. And the police officer told me that I shouldn't be bothering them with the call because it's Father's Day and what did I expect? But then equally, you get the other side of it, you know, a police officer who, after he was served with a non-molestation order, he was actively served it. He was arrested for contacting me. He denied service, even though I had it recorded. And the arrested police officer rang me and said I could, should consider myself lucky that I wasn't being arrested because I'd been in contact with him. 
And despite me saying I've got a lever arch folder full of evidence as to the reason why, because if I don't, then he's a danger, he will kill me. She told me I could consider this a blank slate and consider myself lucky. That police officer's partner drove to my house that night after her shift to warn me that this man will kill me. Although a police officer told Emma she could be arrested, we should clarify that victims cannot be arrested for maintaining contact when there is a non-molestation order in place. The order is against the respondent, in this case the person doing the stalking. However, maintaining contact for whatever reason may weaken the prosecution's case in future court proceedings. The National Police Chiefs Council says that Guidance is clear that officers should not make judgments about victims who do not follow safety advice. Victim responses and behaviours can vary according to the victim's circumstances. This does not mean that the victim is being uncooperative. They are behaving in a way which they believe will keep them safe. It's crucial that police engage with victims in order to understand what measures they are taking to keep themselves safe and why. There is often a victim-blaming narrative towards people who have experienced domestic abuse, and I've seen this too with victims of stalking I've met in the past. Shamed for posting on social media, shamed for the abuse their stalker inflicts on those around them. In Emma's case, she feels she was not only shamed, but was actively fighting to explain to social services why she was maintaining contact with her stalker. Social services broke me, if I'm honest. That was the one part that really did break me. Because for those months, despite me, you know, actively saying I never hid anything, I, you know, was saying that I'm engaging and the reason I'm engaging is because I don't. The consequences are significant. There's transcripts, there's voice recordings, there's video recordings, and I'd warn him every time I'm recording this, I'm recording this. So I went through nine months of that saying the reason I'm doing this is because I know whether to run in the middle of the night. And twice they put me on a care package because they said that I'm a danger to my daughter. They were going to take active steps to remove her from my care because I was engaging with him. And the more I said I'm doing it to keep her safe, the more they, they, they blame me. And it was only literally the last, the last time when they put a care package in place to remove her where there was a police officer who worked with social services who put me in touch with obviously women's aid and the stalking helpers. And it was only that one police officer who listened and said that, no, what she's doing is keeping them both alive. And if she doesn't, then she would be dead. That day literally changed my life. If it wasn't for that, I I was broken, if I'm honest. I was absolutely broken. And it was just sitting back and waiting for him to kill me. Lorraine Garrett-Lee from Black Country Women's Aid. I think victims who are contacting the person who's stalking them, trying to placate them, trying to risk assess. That can often then not be seen as stalking because you're in contact with the person who's offending against you. And sometimes victims come to us because that's the type of attitude that they've experienced. Uh, It can't be stalking if you've made contact with the person. It can't be stalking if you've spoken to them. It has to be completely unwanted and your behaviour has to show it's unwanted. And actually what we realise is that victims behave in this way because they are risk assessing. They know the person that is stalking them often better than anybody else or any risk assessment could identify. And that's part of their behaviour to um, address their own safety. 
it's one thing to have experienced all that, but then just having to fight your case to be proven that, you know, you need the support that you do sounds just absolutely awful, absolutely beyond words. You've alluded to some of this, but could you share what the impact of all of this has been on you and your life? During the, the stalking, you your world shrinks is the best way to describe it. You actively cut friends and family out your life because by engaging with them, you make them a target and a threat. It's bad enough you're going through without putting that onto somebody else. I lived on edge, so you, you don't sleep because you're waiting for the phone call. At the times after when you do the no contact because you don't want to risk your child, it, it, that doesn't stop. The, your mind just plays tricks, really. Uh, you, you do become a shell. You just exist. That's the only way to describe it. You just exist. So that, that world shrinks, but you, you can't do anything to stop it either because you're at a dead end. So at that time, I'd, I'd asked to see a psychologist. So she'd be there when the messages would come through. She'd be there. She'd hear the voicemail message. And she actively said to me that this man is, you know, without clinically seeing him, he is a psychopath, as in the technical definition of a psychopath. And there's no doubt in the mind that given a opportunity, this man will kill you. But because I was trapped in a system where I was hogtied essentially by the police and social services, there was nothing that I could do. It was basically I, I would have to make sure that when eventually that act happened, that my child would be safe. So you're always thinking of those plans all the time, have a bag packed. So at the very end of it, after I'd done three weeks of no contact, with the help of the, the stalking people, we'd put guidance in place and safety nets in place. I was called in to say that that day I had to go home. I had you know, limited amount of time to pack a bag and run, pack what I needed for, uh, you know, a what, 12-month-old child. My mom was to pack her bag and leave her house and we were to run that night because we knew he was such a danger. After nine months of stalking, things eventually came to a head for Emma. He'd gone missing, so his friends and family contacted me thinking that he'd killed me because they couldn't get hold of him. So that's how much his friends and family thought he would do. Nobody could contact him at all. He knew that if he went home at this point, it was it had gone so far, there was so much evidence that the police were sitting outside his house. So he knew he was going to be arrested if he went home. And he was facing significant charges at this point. After going missing, it was discovered that her ex-partner had died by suicide. Strangely, that one weekend was the one weekend that I had gone out. I'd gone to a friend's house for her first birthday party. And I was told that because I wasn't at home that night, that's the only reason he killed himself and not us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is investigate who are stalkers and what is driving that kind of behavior that you described and the impact it had on your life. If you're willing, which I completely understand, if not, I was wondering if you could speak to what do you think drove your ex-partner's behavior? You, at various stages, obviously through that journey, you, you question it a lot and you go through and you reach different conclusions at different times. In hindsight, looking back at it now, obviously you, you, do the, the freedom program which you do through through women's aid uh, to educate you on what abusers are obviously i'd seen various psychologists again so you have that perspective too and then obviously knowing that person people can say you know is it because he he drank or is it because he did drugs um no that heightens it absolutely you know if you're high on drugs or you're incredibly drunk um that makes you more prone to being able to lash out and, and hit somebody or stalk somebody you you have the wherewithal to know when to stop before you kill someone, for example. So it's not there. Those additions don't help you. You know, it's still something that's predisposed inside you. He started all of this because he was attracted to the strength of somebody, but the strength of somebody exposes their weakness. So for everything that you're attracted to, it's everything you want to rip down because it sheds light on their insecurities and their perceived failures. The reason he did the stalking after was pure and simply control. It had gotten out of his control. It had gotten to such a point where it wasn't with within his hands anymore. It then became a game and a fight for him, which he needed to win. He had to become the victor. He had to have what he wanted. And it was very much that lack of control. And the more he was out of control, the dangerous he became. So the nine months of the stalking, he still had an element of control. But as soon as that was taken away with a no contact, that's when it went off the scale. That's when the danger came that's when I knew that he could and would kill us if he could and he did that purely and simply because he'd lacked the control anymore there was no other option of where to go how do you think he saw himself at the time do you think for a second he considered what he was doing as stalking I think he was very much aware of his actions I think there's an element of not being able to control himself but there was also an element as he thought he was above the law because there had been so many times that he had actively, knowingly breached court orders and non-molestation orders and been arrested by police and released by police. He thought he was above the law. He generally thought he was untouchable. He would laugh. He would laugh and say, you know, ring the police because you're going to be the one that's in trouble. And he was right. You know, every time I rang the police, he get away with I don't know telling off or please don't do it at best at worst I'd be hauled into another marriage meeting and threat to take the child off me I was the one that was constantly having the the consequences and the punishment where he he was laughing you know he was fine so did he know what he was doing yes yes 100% did he consider it stalking no he considered it his right to be able to do that he knew 
at the very end, he knew that he'd gone too far. He knew that he was going to be arrested with stalking, harassment, breach of non-molestation order, threatening acts against me and the social worker. So he knew that the charges were irrefutable, that there was nothing that could do to change the outcome and that he was facing prison sentences. He knew that and he knew there were a consequence of his actions. He didn't care. Early intervention keeps coming up as a way to intervene in stalking cases. A pilot of this approach, the Early Awareness Stalking Intervention Project, has been spearheaded by Dr Rachel Wheatley and contributed to by Black Country Women's Aid. But are interventions like these enough? I asked Lorraine about this. For many stalking victims, there has been tragedy where the ultimate act of violence in terms of homicide has taken place. So I think recognising it at the earliest stage. But I think what we really need to change is our views around what victims need to do to prevent stalking, because often the onus is placed on victims. Change your behaviour, change your routines, change your workplace, change where you live, come off your social media you know, be mindful of all of your behaviours. Um, and I think that's one of the, the sort of the focuses that really need to change. Stalking behaviours are the responsibility of the person who is behaving in that way. They are not the responsibility of the victim. I think we also need to become really uh, far better at understanding victims' responses to living within that situation while you may speak to somebody who is stalking you, while you may even go and meet them, trying to negotiate with them, try to placate them, that it is all part of somebody's risk plan. And and understanding that as opposed to seeing somebody who's not helping themselves. And, And that's a phrase that we hear quite often. They're really not helping themselves. But actually what they are doing is helping themselves more often than not. They are trying to risk plan. They are trying to negotiate their own safety and often this can come where they feel I've got nowhere to go because I've approached agencies, I've contacted the police, but nothing is changing and and often it might be getting worse. What makes you want to share your story? For me, so I was diagnosed with what I call complex PTSD. Um, so it, the complex comes in as opposed to normal PTSD is. So if a soldier goes to war, obviously they, they see things which are harrowing and then they have PTSD afterwards. I was still a soldier having to go to war every day, um, knowing that I was still seeing those acts, still living it. So that's where the complex element comes in. So gradually over time, you, you find yourself again, I guess is, is the only way to describe it. You remember the person who could laugh. You can, sleep under a quilt without feeling like his hands strangling you. you you learn to find yourself again and there has to be something good that comes from it I'm a statistic that's the really sad part of this I'm one in a thousand women and it's not that I want to tell my story I want to tell thousands and thousands of women's story because if by saying one story can help change that then it's all been worth it. If you can save one person or reform one person equally, it has to be worth something. You have to have done all of that for it to be worth something. 
for me, my little girl's now five. At some point, I have to look her in the eye and tell her she no longer has a father. As a mother, I'll maintain it and I'll soften it. As far as she knows, that man had always loved her. He never held a crowbar over her head. It's a mother's right to tell that her daddy loved her. She can understand as she gets older that daddy fell out with mommy and daddy could do mean things. But I have to make it worth something for her. There has to be some good that can come out of something so bad. In answer to our questions around police response to stalking, Deputy Chief Constable Paul Mills, National Police Chief's Council Lead for Stalking and Harassment, said... Harassment and stalking are serious crimes which can have a devastating effect on the lives of victims and their friends and family. His words are voiced by an actor. The police service is committed to doing everything possible to protect victims and bring offenders to justice. We have been working hard over the last four years to improve and standardise the police response to stalking. Updated training and guidance for officers and staff has been implemented nationally, which focuses on better understanding stalking and harassment behaviours the impact on victims, and maximising existing police powers to effectively pursue offenders and safeguard victims. However, we recognise there is more to do. We continue to work closely with all 43 police forces across England and Wales, victims groups, partners and the Crown Prosecution Service to improve the standard of investigations and overall victim experience of the criminal justice system. I would urge anyone who believes they may be the victim of stalking or harassment to come forward at the earliest opportunity and report their concerns to police or other support agencies so we can work with them to protect and safeguard them. Thanks for listening to Anatomy of a Stalker. If you have been affected by any of the issues in this episode, resources are available on the advice and support page at crimeandinvestigation.co.uk forward slash advice. On the next episode, I want to find out what the law actually says about stalking and what this looks like in practice. One summer's night, she fell asleep late at night with the window open and she woke up and this man was stood at the foot of her bed. Is there enough being done to keep people safe? Anatomy of a Stalker is a crime and investigation original podcast from Q Podcasts. It's hosted by me, Ruchira Sharma, produced by Kim Montgomery and Graham Woodcock, with music and sound design by Tom Hughes and Graham Woodcock. Niall Kalini-Taylor is our executive producer, and the commissioning editors for Crime and Investigation are Sam Pearson and Diana Carter. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.